Well, hello and welcome again to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, Sport Business U.S. Editor, and as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week, Chris? I'm doing okay, Eric. How are you doing? Good, good. It's a convergence this week of a lot of things that we've been talking about. SPACs and collectibles, we've got them together (laughs) in the same deal. Sports betting, we've got a, a major U.S. state coming online finally, but perhaps not the way some folks would have wanted. And, uh... NFTs uh, continuing to be all the rage across the industry. So there's a lot to unpack here, as always, this week. But first, we're going to have our featured interview. We spent some time with John Rajafi. He's vice chairman of the NBA's Phoenix Suns, uh, but he's also active in Formula One and has a uh, spat going with former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. So there's a a lot to unpack here this week. Stay tuned here. We'll be uh, with you on the other side of the break with our conversation with John Rajafi. And then after that, we'll uh, take a look at some of the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have on Sport Business Finance Weekly as our guest this week, John Najafi, Chief Executive of the Najafi Companies and Vice Chairman of the National Basketball Association's Phoenix Suns. The Najafi Companies, an international private investment firm based in Arizona, over nearly two decades has been active across numerous industries, including sports, media, technology, and real estate. The firm, however, has been particularly active in recent months through a series of deals that include an investment into Formula One's McLaren Racing, That includes Najafi becoming vice chairman of the team, the creation of a new special purpose acquisition company with former National League football quarterback Colin Kaepernick focused on mission-driven entities, and a recent pledge of $10 million over the next decade to the NBA Foundation, which was created last year by the league and the NBA Players Association to support economic empowerment and growth for the Black community. John, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, just for probably uh, the best place to start here, just for the uh, benefit of our listeners here, if you could sort of describe what what uh, the Najafi Companies is and, and sort of where your in original interest in sports particularly has come from. Well, it's a pleasure to have uh, to be on this program, Eric, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. And, and uh, Najafi Companies is a private investment firm. We are not a private equity firm in a traditional sense, like how many others do believe we are. Private equity firms raise money from third parties and deploy them and uh, look to exit in the investments they make. We only invest our own internally generated capital. Uh, we have a long-term view on in our investments. Uh, whenever we acquire and make an investment, we assume we own it forever. It doesn't necessarily mean that we don't exit. It just simply means that we do the right thing for our employees and our customers and exit will take care of itself, whether it's in six months or 20 years. While a number of private equity firms or venture capital firms have a traditionally been looking at three to five year investment horizons, exit variable is not even uh, something that we think about at the very beginning of the investment uh, cycle. So it's given us the opportunity to look at uh, investments on a long-term, longer-term basis. And as a result, it's not the immediate quarter or uh, next this quarter or next quarter or this year or next year that matters as much as, again, doing the right thing for our employees who take care of our customers, we provide a value add to our customers and the businesses in which we invest. 
uh, whether it's a form of entertainment or it's a form of product or service that uh, they hopefully keep coming back to the companies in which we invest and that uh, value creation takes care of itself. John, Eric mentioned that you recently made a, a very sizable commitment to the NBA Foundation. What what inspired you to make that commitment? What are you hoping to accomplish? Kind of what's your involvement with the, the NBA Foundation? Uh, Chris, let me tell you that I am immigrant myself. I came to Phoenix in 1975 without speaking a word of English. So I watched um, a lot of TV and that's how I learned English, including watching the um, Suns play against the Celtics in the 76 NBA Finals. That summer of 76 was a turning point for me personally at the time. My brother and I were living in an apartment on the wrong side of the tracks here in Phoenix, but I was uh, very fortunate to be able to be um, to watch a lot of TV, and that's how I learned English, and I became a Suns fan ever since. When I became and had the opportunity to invest in the Suns in 2009, I can tell you I pinched myself, and I couldn't believe I was given the opportunity to become an owner in 2009, and I invested uh, in the team at the time. I invested more in the team in 2010, and that's when I became the vice chairman and the member of the NBA Board of Governors. Sports as an investment activity for us has been um, very top of mind for the past 10, 12 years. As, as both of you know, sports uh, are the only content that has to be watched real time. All the other uh, entertainment content has time shifted. You can watch anything, anywhere, on any device, at any, any time. And sports really has to watch, be watched real time if you're interested as a fan. As a result, media rights have uh, continued to increase dramatically uh, because that's the only way that advertisers can reach their, their potential market on a real-time basis. The second reason as an investment activity is that sports teams and leagues uh, from, has owned the IP to intellectual property and already incurred a cost of putting on the production of the, of the activity. Yet, when you think about the value chain, historically, these leagues and teams have sold their rights through a wholesaler, uh, such as ESPN and or um, other like CBS, and they resell those rights effectively through cable companies to the final consumer who watches it on TV or on their device. When you think about the value chain, uh, leagues and teams as the IP owners only get somewhere around 15 to 20% of the value chain. That's been historically the case. In the new world, they can potentially go around. I'm not saying that they should, that they shouldn't. But my view is that over the next 10 to 20 years, that IP ownership, they're already incurring the cost of production. So any additional revenue that will come into the sports teams and leagues will flow to the bottom line. Uh, so in, in my view, as we IP owners become and get a larger portion of the value chain, and the revenue will increase and values will, will increase. You mentioned this journey with the league and through your um, ownership uh tenure over the past decade or so here. Looking forward, where do you see the international growth prospects of the NBA being particularly robust or the particular territories that you think the league is poised for a particular growth? Well, I can tell you, I am absolutely uh, the biggest fan of, uh, of Adam Silver and Mark Tatum. They have done an amazing job in uh, creating value and expanding the reach of the NBA globally, as you may have uh, recently read. Uh, now we have NBA Africa uh, League as well that's been established and, and created. And so when you think about basketball, it's truly the only global sport. Anywhere in the world, you can pick up a ball and start playing basketball. Uh, all the other sports are not uh, as global as basketball. So this is only the beginning, in my view. 
we established NBA China, as you know, many years ago, and uh, the, the world has still not been exposed significantly to NBA basketball, and I expect that to continue in the future with Adam at, uh, at the helm of the league. John, one of the other uh, new initiatives, I guess, uh, in and around the NBA and some other leagues is the potential for institutional investors to be LP stake owners, to be investors in NBA teams. And uh, there was a deal that was uh, uh, reported a couple of weeks ago about Arctos and Golden State. How how do you view uh, institutional investors becoming minority shareholders in NBA teams? Do you think there's pros and cons to that? Are you all in favor of your view of that? Yeah, Chris, sports is really the only remaining global industry to which institutional exposures don't have investment activity yet. It's historically been about individuals and, and or, or trusts, uh, if you will. And uh, when you think about pension funds, uh, insurance company, sovereign wealth funds, any institutional investors, they have not historically had the opportunity to invest in sports teams and leagues. This is the first time when uh, they can actually take partake in the increased in value uh, opportunity that exists in sports teams and leagues. And it's great to see that uh, the NBA has taken this initiative as well as Major League Baseball and taking these initiatives moving forward and starting to expose the industry to institutional investors. So I'm very supportive. In prior episodes of the podcast here, we've spent a lot of time talking about the SPAC craze over the last year or so, SPACapalooza, as we like to call it. But you've got a a different sort of uh, notion in mind here uh, with this uh, effort that you've got going with Colin Kaepernick. How did that come together? And what was the driver beyond, obviously, his social activism to get into this particular mission-driven lane with what you guys are doing? Well, I've known uh, Colin for about uh, nearly four years, and we have looked at a number of different investment opportunities together. We look at the world similarly. Uh, We think about making a difference, not only doing well, but also doing good. And as a result, uh, we, as uh, the opportunity presented itself in the SPAC uh, to do it in a public way, we decided that uh, we should do it and take a higher profile role. And uh, in fact, look at these companies in manner in which we can infuse all the important principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice into the companies, as well as the products of the of a business that we acquire. As you know, the SPAC, my background in history has been in the context of our investment company is making one or two investments a year since not a private equity firm. And we don't do 12 or 20, or we do one or two investments annually. And the, the SPAC is a perfect opportunity to find the right merger partner um, and uh, and work with that merger partner to see how we can uh, think about all of those principles and infusing into the company itself, into its products, as well as the customers. John, at a very high level, what types of businesses are you exploring? What types of industries? Again, I know you can't be that specific, but can you give the audience any sense of the types of companies that you're looking at? Consumer-facing products or services and or businesses that is a true value add uh, to the customer. Uh, we have to, we're not looking at any business that pushes this product out to the customer. We're looking for businesses that we can enhance the customer's life or enhance their viewership and provide a value add to their life, making their life better, making their life more interesting and making their life more fun. Uh, those are the kinds of businesses that, that, that we're looking at. 
what's been the initial reaction to what you're doing and how do you sort of see this particular venture competing against all the other SPACs out there and the notion that there might be more SPACs than potentially deals available? Yeah. And and I I can't comment on uh, any other SPACs out there. And I can tell you in the private investment world, there are also thousands of uh, uh, parties looking at making investments, including in sports teams and leagues. And uh, we have been fortunate enough to be successful over the past 20 years to finding the right investment opportunity ourselves here. And I don't think that we'll have any problems finding the right merger partner for um, the Mission Advancement Corp. So, you know, it's, I'm not worried about other SPACs out there. We have a unique situation. We have expertise ourselves in, in creating value in the company, historically at Najafi companies. And we compare and you add us to Colin and what he has been able to achieve. Uh, he has significant reach across the world, uh, frankly, not just here in the US and North America, but also in Europe. And there are a number of also global influencers uh, with whom he has strong relationships. So we do think that there, and, and so far we have received significant inbound interest with merger partners, and it's a matter of finding the right one for us to uh, work with and uh, merge with in order to uh, add significant value. Switching gears, what uh, drove your interest in and your investment in Formula One? I would say the same thing. As you know, Chris, you and I have interacted for a number of years. We've been very interested in looking at sports and uh, sports investment opportunities. Originally, uh, three years ago, I looked at uh, acquiring Force India. That's how I was exposed to it, through Liberty Media. When Liberty Media decided to acquire Formula One Group, uh, the league itself, that's when I became very intrigued with the idea of uh, acquiring a team. And uh, now that the Williams transaction has been done, we also looked at uh, the Williams transaction about uh, two years ago. We uh, were introduced to uh, McLaren. Also, a couple of years ago and uh, last year, uh, we made a decision to invest uh, with McLaren. Um, really a, a tremendous pedigree and background and an unbelievable team led by Zach Brown, who is really a world-class uh, CEO of, uh, frankly, any team that we could find. Not just simply McLaren as a team itself, but also Formula One group led by Liberty and what value add that they're planning to bring the changes they want to invest. Uh, for example, the cost gap that they established last year, as you know, in most uh, leagues and teams, whenever you establish an opportunity for, for uh, cost cap, then uh, finally teams become profitable and therefore um, values increase. But in addition, uh, their thought about expanding their presence in North America, their conversations about adding additional races in North America. And again, the same reason I, I expressed earlier, uh, media rights are going to continue to go up and uh, and potentially uh, the idea of, uh, of direct-to-consumer uh, opportunities in the future for the league itself will also lead to increased values, in my view. Since the McLaren deal uh, specifically closed, uh, what's been your kind of key learning or takeaway as you've gotten further involved on an operating basis with them? Well, as you know, uh, we as investors are invest in people and invest in management teams. That is by far the most important determining variable when we choose to make an investment decision. And uh, we are not involved in the day-to-day basis. We interacted with uh, with Zach Brown and his and others, Seidel, um, the team principal, as well as others in the racing team, including McLaren Corporate itself, Paul Walsh, the executive chairman of McLaren Group, uh, which was uh, prior to our investment in McLaren Racing, uh, the sole owner of McLaren Racing, 
he separated McLaren Racing uh, from McLaren Group, became his own independent racing team. And that's uh, the entity in which we invested. I can tell you that I had the opportunity and pleasure to attend Bahrain at the inaugural uh, F1 race in Bahrain last weekend or 10 days ago. And uh, it was a tremendous, a great country, wonderful host of the inaugural race for the season. And, uh, and watching the team uh, really work the cars, the technical side, as well as the strategy for the day of race, uh, the strategy for qualifying rounds, and as well as testing. Uh, it truly is mind-boggling, the, uh, what, all the details that they go through, thousands and thousands of variables and analyses that's done on a regular basis at really minute-by-minute minute to determine what is the best way and what's the best strategy to, uh, to run the course. And, of course, our two, uh, two wonderful uh, drivers, um, they're both the world-class and I'm so excited to be partnering with them. Tom, you mentioned North America and that opportunity what is it going to take for F1 to be an even more uh, important part of the U.S. sports landscape? Obviously, there's, there's already success, but, but there's a lot of opportunity to grow even further. What would it take for F1 to become an even you know, bigger part of our landscape here? Probably additional races and also an American driver. As you may have read, McLaren signed a young uh, Ugo, a 13-year-old phenom in the, uh, in the karting world. And uh, we hope that he's going to be, uh, he's, he's a U.S.-based uh, uh, racing, a karting driver and an unbelievable talent. We hope and expect to have him uh, come on board in the next few years. So if you add additional races and as well as uh, American drivers, I think that will increase significantly the presence of the U.S. In fact, I think that the most recent Bahrain Grand Prix was the highest viewed uh, on ESPN in, uh, in F1 history in the U.S. So there is significant interest in the U.S. that's growing. As you look ahead towards the duration of 2021, what else is on your roadmap and how are you sort of balancing things to make sure that you don't get spread too thin with all these various things that we've talked about? Yeah. So in, in, for us here at our, at our investment company, uh, we are very, very driven by uh, focusing on the most important part of any company in any business. It's people. And it's the management team that, man- that oversee and run those businesses. And if you have world-class people running and, and working in the business as our partners, as our colleagues, then we, can, we don't think we are spread thin at all. The time when uh, there has to be changes at uh, the management team. That's when we consider it to be thin. And that's one of the reasons why we don't ourselves do uh, really more than one or two or three investments a year, because we understand that there is some time that needs to be spent in, um, in, in working with those management teams. So we hope and expect to uh, add additional investments to our portfolio in 2021 and into the future. I can tell you that uh, I really love what I do, and I guess they'll carry me out. (laughs) That's great news. Fantastic. Well, there's obviously a lot to continue to track and cover, which we will be doing. And we want to thank John DeJaffe for spending this time with us on Sport Business Finance Weekly. Eric and Chris, thank you for having me. Thank you.
And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank John Jaffe again for spending uh, some time with us this week. So the news of the week, you know, as I, we said at the outset, sort of uh, trend convergence week of sorts here, and. Um, the uh, story of Tops going public here really just blends a lot of things that we've been talking about over the last couple of months here. Uh, the trading card and collectible space is red hot, as as we've uh, explored in detail, but also the Spacapalooza craze that we spent a lot of time with as well. This was the vehicle by which uh, Tops is going public now. They're They've done a deal with uh, a uh, SPAC created by Mudrick Capital, and they're going to be going public here uh, later this year in a deal valuing the company, uh, the venerable trading card company, at $1.3 billion. And uh, this really uh, seeks to sort of turbocharge their uh uh, development that's sort of been in progress here over the last dozen or so years since uh, former Disney uh, chief executive Michael Eisner bought the company. And uh, with this deal now with Mudrick, uh, really looking to take it to the next level here. So I, I guess from from your perspective, uh, you know, we again, we knew the trading card space was red hot and a lot of folks uh, uh, were taking a look at tops in terms of what the next phase of their growth could be. But uh, did this SPAC deal surprise you? Uh, no, Eric, this didn't surprise me uh, in part because, as you mentioned, the collectible market is hot, the SPAC market is strong, and Tops is one of those independent sports companies that is fairly large. The company had more than $560 million of revenue. So the SPACs, as they're seeking big companies to bring into those vehicles, uh, look to companies like Tops that have scale and obviously have growth. The thing that was somewhat surprising was the SPAC that actually uh, merged or is going to merge with uh, with Tops, which is Mudrick Capital Acquisition Corp uh, number two, I believe. And that was a SPAC that technically could buy any kind of business, but was tended to be focused on distressed companies, which Tops uh, is not. What that signals to me is, you know, all of these sports SPACs and media specs that are looking around and saying, boy, we've got some some issues here. we got 40 or 50 other sports specs out there. Well, actually, you're not just competing with the other sports specs sometimes. You can actually have specs that are more general interest or general purpose come in and make an acquisition of a, of a sports or media-related business. Yeah, and this gets back to the sort of fundamental question that sort of surrounds this whole conversation that we've been having around SPACs is, are there too many of them for the number of available deals that could be potentially out there? And there will be clearly some winners and losers in this space, and and, and clearly Eisner and Topps and Mudrick all found each other and uh, sort of were able to, to latch on and uh, uh, make their way together here. But in addition to the... Uh, the growth of the collectibles market, I think one of the strong things that Tops brings to the table and obviously is going to be an attractive target or was an attractive target is all these player uh, association, player union and league relationships that they have. They've got a real strong licensing stable, Major League Baseball, the MLB Players Association, National Hockey League, NHL Players Association, World Wrestling Entertainment, a whole bunch of other real tier one type of properties that those kind of relationships, particularly given the amount of exclusivity that is increasingly coming into that space, those are relationships that are you can't replicate again if they're if they're signing exclusive deals. So they that's a real big asset that Topps was bringing to the table. They they certainly will. Uh, they cer- I'm sorry. They certainly were and are, and that's certainly good news as well for the leagues and the players' associations as this collectible business gets more robust. What I do wonder, though, Eric, 
is how this category is now defined and whether these rights translate to NFTs or not. And over time, whether the leagues are going to want to do their own NFTs or do the NFTs in in conjunction with companies like Dapper Labs, how the rights marketplace and landscape shakes out over the next couple of years is going to be very interesting because some of the traditional partnerships and players may be relevant for the, the the traditional world, but how does the digital collectibles landscape play out? That's still to be determined. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and uh, you know, I'm not a, a consumer products lawyer, and you know, and I've been privy to some of the financial details of uh, uh, some of these uh, trading card deals with the various players associations, particularly since uh, in the United States, the players associations have to file uh, public annual reports every year. So we get a window into some of that. But I can't imagine a lot of these standard licensing contracts with a company like Tops and a a players union would necessarily have a lot of existing language speaking to something like an NFT. So either you have to bolt on and do a supplemental deal or you have to go back to that original deal and do a, a fairly drastic revision. So I think you raise a good point here that a lot of that existing contract language is going to have to be revisited in some fashion to adapt to what is obviously a uh, rapidly evolving marketplace. And again, kind of sitting in the league's shoes or the players association shoes, there may be an entirely new kind of bidding process that can be created if those rights for NFTs, let's say, have not already been granted, because you may have some of the traditional companies like Tops, like Panini, like Upper Deck wanting the NFT rights, but then a whole family of new companies who are recently getting funded in the NFT space also wanting those rights. So there again could be another nice payday for the leagues and and the players. Yeah, I think that's a great point because if you if you talk to the folks at somebody like a Tops or a Panini in the upper deck, it's a fairly small community. They all know each other. They all know what their bidding strategies are, what their capital structures are, and sort of where they all are in their respective evolutions and licensing cycles and so forth. So it's been a it's sort of like network TV rights where they were all sort of dealing with known quantities, but much like, as we've discussed in prior episodes, the, the traditional broadcast networks have to deal with a whole set of new players now as streaming entities come into the scene. There's all these new technology firms that they've not only never had to deal with, but may not have even heard of, you know, now are significant business competitors for key licensing rights. Yeah. Well, look, again, if you if you own the IP or you own the player images and likenesses, you're in a nice place because as technology changes or emerges, whether it's through video, through NFTs, through any of these other products, you know, you'll be in the catbird seat. So going forward, I would imagine you would uh, expect to see a lot more of these kind of unions where this kind of trading card and collectible space continues to be an attractive target among the existing and future SPACs. I believe that it will be, but maybe in a different way than than would kind of come to mind at first. I don't think there are that many billion-dollar collectible companies out there right now, but there are a lot of hot, emerging, young collectible companies. So I'm not sure there will be that many standalone SPAC deals with collectible companies, but I think you might have collectible companies merging with other businesses or being part of bigger consolidations as part of SPACs to add the sizzle, add the growth, Add, add the new opportunity. So I do think collectibles will play a role in the SPAC space, but not necessarily that many as standalones because there just aren't that many billion-dollar companies out there. 
Yeah, and I think that's a good point because uh, you know tops, even though they're they're growing at historic levels now and posted record revenues as you indicated last year, a lot of the value comes in seven plus decades of brand equity that they've built up, and you know half of which of that time they had a monopoly on baseball trading cards, and so there's just a lot of inherent multi-generational value there that they're also bringing to the table in addition to the revenues that we've talked about and the licensing relationships that they've brought uh, that uh, that we've talked about that, that long-term brand equity is again, just something that you can't necessarily find elsewhere. Absolutely. It is, it is a premium brand and there aren't that many premium brands in the trading card production business. So it's, it's something that's uh, really going to be an advantage for them. So while we've been alluding to NFTs here, uh, shifting gears are only slightly, but in the NFT player space here, you know, the last two decades of, you know, on the football field, there's been a real spirited rivalry of sorts between Tom Brady and the Manning brothers, either Peyton or Eli, uh, in the, in Brady's case, I, uh, he's done, uh, some celebrated battles with both of them. And we had news out of, uh, all three of them this week, uh, that they're, emerging hot and heavy in, in this uh, NFT space. The Manning Brothers, they, uh, they've got a venture going with a entity called Maker's Place where they want to do a, a series of NFTs and, and what they're calling storytelling through uh, digital art. And meanwhile, Tom Brady, he's even going further where he's got a whole NFT venture that he's put together called Autograph. And he's got some real top tier uh, industry figures helping him on this uh, as advisors. Uh, Peter Goober, who's a co-owner of the uh, Golden State Warriors and Los Angeles Dodgers. Jason Robbins and Paul Lieberman, the co-founders of uh, DraftKings. Uh, Michael Rapino, the chief executive of Live Nation. I mean, real heavy hitters are helping him with this thing. So no half measures here for Tom Brady and really no half measures for the Manning brothers either that it seems like there's a whole sort of new thought process about this, that there's no need to necessarily do a players association deal of any sort. And obviously the Manning brothers are retired, so they'd have the ability to do their own thing anyway. But even for somebody like Tom Brady, you know, no need to sort of try to do something with the NFL Players Association. He's just going out and doing his own huge thing here. So it seems like we've got a whole new thought process about how players want to uh, exploit their digital opportunities and their digital rights here. Yeah. Well, Tom, you know, Tom, we were talking about Tops as a brand. Tom Brady is a brand. Absolutely. And now in the world in the world of NFT, even though he's calling he's calling the platform autograph because it's not just going to be about him. As I understand it, he's going to have lots of athletes and celebrities and entertainers as part of the mix and as part of the product. Pop culture influencers, a whole bit across a number of different genres. Exactly. But what you know, what I am surprised about is how quickly given the the boom has really been relatively recent, he was able to assemble this whole star-studded group of people to work with him on this venture and to contribute and to be part of it. And it it seems like he's going to have a a lot of attention on him as he launches this later in the spring. And as you said, Eric, it looks like he is creating more of a long-term business that he wants to create, whereas the Mannings are certainly getting involved. But it it looks like this is more of 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 an initial initiative, and we'll see where they take it. Yeah, and in the case of Brady, it seems like uh, he just got done with the Super Bowl celebrations here. So to put this all together with the kind of people that he did and the kind of scale and ambition here, uh, you know, I was really taken aback by that as well. Although he did get uh, beaten out by Gronk, who has already launched his NFTs. So right, yes, and he, he's, he's the one who made the Saturday Night Live skit and not Brady. 
Yeah. So I think, again, what's exciting about this, and again, it really gets back to our discussion about rights. You know, traditionally, you had either the trading card companies in the tops and the upper decks, or you had the leagues or the players associations with all of the clout. And I think that will still continue to some degree. But now because of the nature of NFTs and because the imagery is artwork that doesn't necessarily rely on league marks or or, or league IP, you have players, whether it's active players, retired players, trying to strike out on their own and create their own products and create their own brand. So it's going to be interesting to see how many of these we end up uh, seeing in the marketplace and what value they ultimately hold. But it's it's definitely something I expect to continue. So as this market just continues to grow and develop here, I, I would imagine there's going to be some interesting dynamics and some push-pull between more star-level individual athletes wanting to do ventures of these types versus somebody like a one-team partners who has group licensing rights with not only the NFLPA, but a number of uh, major players unions and certainly they're going to have a major voice in in something like this and and I would imagine there's going to be some real interesting back and forth in terms of the individual approach versus a group licensing approach. Yeah, and I and I think it even goes, you know, further than that Eric. Those are the, you know, those are kind of two extremes. There's there's group licensing and then there's the individual, but then there's also the potential of media companies getting into the mix. And I'll give you one one example, Slam Magazine uh, recently did an NFT drop with Zion Williamson, where they took classic slam covers with Zion and, and turned those in, into NFTs. You could obviously see a lot of other media companies wanting to get into the mix and, and create NFTs. So we'll see where this all nets out. I, I do have some concern that we'll have such an oversupply at some point that it will start to, 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 to be a little bit bubblish, but, but we'll see how, uh, how everybody restrains themselves and whether ultimately you have a set of premium NFTs that holds long-term value. Yeah, and the, and the media point is is a good one here because there are some particular exclusive relationships out there, and I'm thinking about something like the kind of relationship that Tiger Woods has with Golf Digest, you know, where there's been a historic sort of contractual relationship between a media entity and a star athlete, and there are others out there that those kind of relationships would be a natural launching pad for other NFTs, similar to what you described with Zion Williamson. Yeah, and think about Sports Illustrated, a property that I worked with a couple of years ago. That's SI Cover has been an iconic place for athletes to be. Who knows? There could be some interesting things coming in in that realm as well. Absolutely. So uh, just a, a real fascinating space we're going to be continuing to to track and, and talk about in future episodes here. But uh, shifting gears here this week, uh, we, we've obviously talked a lot about the emerging sports betting market in the United States and waiting for the most populous states in, in the country to come online with, with fully fledged online sports betting. And, and we got sort of a step there this week with New York. And this is one that we've been watching since the uh, late state state's legislative session began shortly after the holidays and in and, and early January. And they've now come to the end of that process and gotten the uh, next uh, the state's uh, budget for the next fiscal year that was enacted this week. And within that, the provisions were in place for mobile sports betting in New York. Um, and what's interesting is there was a real sort of push-pull in that situation as well, whereas Governor Andrew Cuomo, he wanted a limited operator model where the uh, mobile sports betting in New York was controlled through the state and through the state's gaming commission versus the multiple operator model where we've seen in New Jersey and a number of other states, you know, grow very rapidly. 
And even though Cuomo's sort of fighting for his political life uh, amid a number of other scandals unrelated to this particular topic, he was able to sort of emerge victorious on this one where the uh, the model that's in place where it's going to be controlled through the Gaming Commission, there's going to be no less than four licensed mobile betting operators in the state, but it, it's not going to be the dozen plus type of situation that we've seen in New Jersey and in other states thus far. And it's, and it's going to be much more of a control situation where the revenues are foremost concentrated back to the state coffers. So I guess sort of first off, your kind of reaction on this, uh, did that sort of final model surprise you, particularly based on where Cuomo's political capital seems to be right now? Yeah, it didn't surprise me. It disappointed me a little bit because I I would like to see a more uh, robust competitive market where there are more players in the space and there's more choice for consumer for consumers and there's more opportunities for innovation among the books but I'm not sure it's it the 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 story is over yet because as you mentioned Eric some of the languages there'll be at least four at least four skins there's two yeah. operators at least four skins so I think there's still some wiggle room for this to expand potentially over time I think the good news is we've we've gotten over the hump of yes we're going to have mobile betting in my view it will be great if we can have a, a a large group of operators to create that competitive mix. But, you know, we'll see. I think there's still some battles ahead as these details get worked out. Yeah. You, and you raise a good point there because the uh, I spent some time here this week trying to sift through the language in what the final budget contained. And it's, it's pretty confusing. And even you talk to some of the operators who obviously would love to get involved in this, given that uh, New York is the fourth most populous state in the country and, you know, huge tourism market and where all the leagues are headquartered and so forth. And, you know, really important market. And even they're trying to sort through this thing because there there is so much in that actual budget document. There's so much redlining and uh, revisions and amendments here. And, you know, this thing was sort of done so last minute that you could make the case that even the legislators involved and the governor's staff don't necessarily know everything that's no. in here or what the consequences are actually going to be. No, that's right. And I, it's from what I'm reading, again, the legislators are trying to figure it out themselves. And there'll be all kinds of discussions that will happen going forward because if there are more operators, in my opinion, there's likely to be more marketing dollars spent, more media dollars spent. And that's going to be good news for the New York media market, for the New York marketing market, for the New York sports teams. And so I think you'll see certainly a push to have more operators added to the mix as things go. We'll see ultimately over time whether you also get the addition of sports books at stadiums, which is not, as I understand it, part of the it's initial not. authorized uh, piece. But but again, this is a first step, and and hopefully it is just a work in progress. Because the other thing you know, New York has to understand is that you know people can still go to New Jersey to place wagers. People are unfortunately still using offshore. Uh, books. And so there still is competition, you know, even outside of New York in terms of what the, the residents are doing. So I do think it's important to have a good product and, and a good system in place. Yeah. And, and again, that marketing piece is something that I'm really going to be watching because, uh, you know, I live in New Jersey and I, I see it all around me where it's just a, a constant barrage of marketing across every single platform you can think of. And the mar- this was the, you know, once uh, the Supreme Court ruling uh, went in almost three years ago, this was the first state to uh, to make the jump on this, and so now it's a it's a fully fledged, mature, robust market, and I see it all around me. And what Cuomo's intent appears to have been is to try to take some of those marketing dollars and funnel it back 
to the to the public coffers as much as possible. You know, but there's there's again a lot of eyes on this market because yeah. the expectation I think even with this sort of more limited structure is that this should be, for the reasons we just described, one of the top, if not the top, sports betting state in the entire country. And you know, how this manifests itself both now and after, you know, likely subsequent revisions, as you suggest, you know, it's going to be really important. Yeah. And keep in mind, Eric, beyond it being a big market with a lot of betters, it really is the center of the financial industry, the center yep. of the media industry, the center of the advertising industry. So in a pretty free market, you'd see a lot of ad spending, not just to acquire customers, but to create a presence in New York among all the influencers that your particular sports book is maybe bigger than it is or is stronger right. or is more powerful. So there, there's a lot of marketing money to be spent in the state subject to how ultimately these these rules and regulations play out. Yeah. And there's a real cachet with the venues too. I mean, we, we've seen some other things and, you know, there's going to be a sports book in the district of Columbia nationals park, another one at capital one arena. Uh, there's one coming to Wrigley field in uh, Chicago, but to think about who gets the rights to open up a sports book in Madison square garden or Yankee <laughs> stadium. I mean, you know, that's, that's a deal to end all deals. I mean, you know, I mean the, the, the bragging rights and the, you know, that's, that's beachfront property. If there are was any. Yeah, no, and I and look, I appreciate I think all states are dealing with budget challenges and need to to maximize revenue for their citizens. At the end of the day, though, I hope all of this comes together in a way that is really pro-consumer experience, whether that means through the books, through the online apps that and, and that tends to happen more, not to repeat myself, but tends to happen more when you have competition and innovation and creativity as opposed to, a, you know, a single provider or a small number of providers. Right. So this is... Um there's going to be a uh, sort of licensing process that'll evolve over the summer. There's certainly an expectation that some of these operators will be up and going in New York in time for the NFL season this fall. But the sort of fully fledged budget projections and revenue projections that the state has laid out really don't manifest themselves until the middle part of this decade. So again, I think next year's budget, the budget thereafter, you know, I think your initial point's a good one here that the story's not yet been fully written here. Yeah. And I think, Eric, from what I'm reading, the, you know, there's going to be a process this summer, an RFP process, and then the state authority is going to have up to 150 days to make selections. And so, you know, will, will there be betting during the NFL season or not, or will it slip into the Super Bowl and next year? Again, hard to tell. I'm, I'm sure everyone wants to move it along to take advantage of the NFL season. But if we have some twisting and turning on some of these negotiations, uh, sometimes think, things can take longer than is ideal. Sure. And as we uh, close out this week's episode and sort of look ahead to what else is happening in the space, uh, what are you keeping your eye on here? Well, it's really kind of what's happening today and over the weekend. The Masters is going to be a yep. very interesting event, and we'll be, you know, like everyone else, we'll look at what the ratings are with Tiger not in the mix and see, uh, you know, how well the event does. And, and again, just be interesting to compare, as as you know, when Tiger doesn't play in some of these events, the uh, the ratings tend to be not as strong. Yeah, and once this episode drops, we'll have a winner, and uh, shortly after this episode uh, sees the light of day, we will start to get some of those ratings here, and uh, 
but it will be real interesting to sort of see Augusta National in its sort of full spring glory as opposed to the adjusted uh, fall event that we had back before Thanksgiving. But from my side, uh, you know, spending a lot of time looking at the uh, increasingly competitive data space here, we had uh, uh, Genius Sports uh, based over in London. They recently landed exclusive uh, uh, global data rights with the National Football League. Really big uh, sort of industry shaking deal that involved the NFL in part getting equity in Genius. But there's a lot more going on there to that story as well. They're about to go public. This is another SPAC deal that's been in the works since last fall. There is a uh, shareholder meeting uh, this coming week uh, to approve to formally approve that uh, merger and take them public. They've also done a rebranding where they've some uh, sort of tertiary and secondary brands. Uh, the Genius was operating is all being sort of folded in into that uh, primary Genius Sports moniker here, and and they're really sort of gearing up here that they've got a. Uh, sort of real vibrant industry competition going on with Sport Radar and some other players here. And as this betting space emerges and as this data market continues to mature as well, um, you know, this is a company, particularly now in this new publicly traded structure, you know, they're looking to make some waves and it's going to be something to continue bear watching. Yeah, well, the, the data space, again, the kind of uh, emergence and, and, and explosion in the data space is once again good news for the, those that own intellectual property, the yes. leagues, and uh, you know the, the deals that they are doing and can be doing that now are accentuated because of betting, you know, both in the U.S. and overseas, is again just another kind of right that is something that becomes valuable now, and the leagues are, are looking to capitalize on it, whether it's through fees or equity or or other kinds of consideration. Sure. Well, that's going to close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. We thank you for spending this time with us and we'll see you again next week. 